Matt, do Americans have like travel shows? Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I'm I'm not really a good judge of this. I don't really watch television. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you watch TV with me sometimes. Oh, I do. I mean, that's the thing is because I've made such an effort to not watch television when a television is on, I just get sucked into it whether I like it or not. <laughs> And I only watch shows about murder. And rape. <laughs> and occasionally baking cakes and also antiques roadshow now. Yes. Th- those are the things that I watch. And you also watch some things about renovating. But to answer your question, watching the stuff that other people like to do uh, on vacation just isn't that interesting to me because I'm probably at home miserable because I'm can't afford a vacation right right it's like (laughs) watching shows about things that you wish you could do but you literally can't because you don't have the time or money or if i was there i would do it very differently from these people who are you know they've got partnerships with a hotel out there right but that's just me and we're also like (laughs) we're interested in very niche things now so (laughs) wherever we go it's probably not the sort of mainstream thing and i always feel actually i feel like you know whenever i've traveled even before we fell into amateur archaeology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really hated the usual run-of-the-mill travel stuff. My parents really love those fucking coach tours where you're on a bus and then a, what do you call them, a tour guide has this whole spiel that they do over and over and over again. They tell really shitty, dumb jokes. Everybody and takes a picture out of the side of the bus yes. as you drive past a... Like a really beautiful historic site, a you landmark, might, right? And oh, you get out and walk for five minutes, and but most of the trip it just smells like fucking bus and bus toilet. Ugh, I hate them so much. <laughs> this is all a really long way of saying that surprise for the next couple of episodes of the Bog House, we're going to do a Dunphy style Bog House travel show. So take a seat. You're in the Bog House. As we mentioned in episode 21 a few weeks ago, this past September, Melissa and I celebrated our 16th wedding anniversary by going on a kind of impromptu mini vacation that accidentally turned into an episode of The Bog House. You actually booked the vacation. It was kind of both of our idea to go on a vacation, but I was super stressed out, so I was like, Matt... You're stressed out. We had things that kept coming up, and our plan to go far and wide uh, was foiled by lack of, well, time and money. (laughs) So, (laughs) there's old bears. Despite that, this this stress was building up, and I'm like, we need a vacation. Right. Let's go somewhere away from everything that we usually do. Didn't quite work, but anyway, we tried really hard. You booked two nights in a really swanky room at the Inn at the Chesapeake Bay Beach Club and Spa. Oh, yeah, right up my alley. (laughs) (laughs) In Stevensville, Maryland, which is on an island in the Chesapeake Bay that it's now connected to Annapolis and the peninsula that comes out on the eastern side of Maryland, which I recently learned is called the Delmarva. I'm saying it in your (laughs) accent because otherwise it sounds like you say it. Delmarva. 
I was like, whoa, what's this name? And then I looked at it a little closely. And guess what? It's a portmanteau of Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia. That's the va, right? I bet nobody calls it Does that. Does anybody? Nobody calls if it If you that. live in Maryland, do you call it the Delmarva Peninsula? Please, boghouse at thehanna.org. Let me know because I'm really curious. This is just what Wikipedia told me. Like, it's not me. clever. In Northern Virginia, I hear people call that Nova because that works. But nobody's like, oh, Delmarva, like my aunt. <laughs> well, it's like Delmar sounds like of the sea, mm-hmm. except it's got a va on the end. I don't know. Um, anyway, first things first. Although the resort was called a beach club, we discovered on the first night by asking the concierge at the hotel that there is no access by anyone, not even hotel guests, to the beach. That's right. (laughs) They do have a beach that is separate from the facility that if you have planned a wedding, you can use. But whatever. It's fine. We're just there for two nights. Not a big deal. I mean, it turned out most of this place was kind of set up for weddings. Yeah, it was super wedding geared. There was a restaurant uh, and a cafe. I mean, sort of nice hotel amenities. The cafe had nice hearty breakfasts. And uh, there was a huge patio with a fire pit, which the guests were allowed to use. But But that took all of the appeal from the fire pit for us. Because there were always (laughs) guests around the fire pit. And we didn't want to talk to anyone because we're on vacation. That's right. When I'm on vacation, I don't want to talk to fucking anyone. As we were driving there, on our way there, just to rewind a little bit, we did notice that there were signs for historic Stevensville. This should have been our first red flag that our idea of taking a vacation was kind of hopeless. And you didn't choose this spot because it was historic, like, at all, right? No, I literally, I went to Google Maps and I typed the word resort and looked for things within, like, a two or three hour driving radius sorted by price. But anyway, we saw these historic Stevensville signs as we were driving by. And then at the resort, we saw there were a few of those brochures for, like, local things. And kind of reluctantly, we picked up a couple of them and took them back to our hotel room. And we're like, okay, well, let me see what's happening locally. Maybe there's something really low-key that we can do. And it turned out that Stevensville's historic sites are open to the public on the first Saturday of every month between April and November... And our anniversary was actually the next day, September 7th, the first Saturday of the month. So surprise, it's open Saturday for historic Stevensville's sites. We uh, went ahead and got up the next day, uh, had breakfast at the hotel, and drove about a mile or two into historic Stevensville just to see what all the fuss was about. And I packed my Zoom H1, my little recorder, just in case there was anything interesting to record that might make it onto a podcast or something, like crickets. Aren't these crickets beautiful? They're beautiful cricket sounds. I really like... Sorry. Do they have crickets in Australia? I mean, yes, but I think they sound different to American crickets. Well, we certainly don't hear crickets very often next to I-95. This is true. The crickets are nowhere near us here. <laughs> So our first couple of stops in Stevensville were just a couple of the many antique stores on the main street going through this cute little town. I was kind of done with antique stores at this point in my life. 
Not anymore. Yeah, now it's like, oh, let's go in the antique store. Maybe they'll have some old ceramics that we can scoff at because it's not they're not as old as our ceramics. And it's also just nice that since we have a bunch of stuff that we found, going into antique stores, you're looking at stuff that other people have found and That's I just true. don't feel like I want to buy it. Unless it's super relevant to us, which, okay, so in this first antique store, we found a couple of things. We found a blue transferware porcelain plate. It's modern. It was like, I don't know, from the 80s or the 70s, maybe. It was probably from the bicentennial. I think it was actually uh, maybe, yeah. a modern plate done using a historic design. We bought it because it shows Independence Hall or the State House, as it was called back then. There was a surprising amount of Philadelphia-related ephemera in these Kent Island antique shops. Yeah, and well, the second thing that we bought that I was like, ooh, I guess I have to buy that now, is I found this tiny little booklet, which is from 1926, and it's celebrating the sesquicentennial in Philadelphia, sesquicentennial means 150 years. So from 1776 to 1926, celebrating 150 years of American independence. Now, keep that date in your head because we're going to come back to it before this trip is over. Yeah, it turns out this trip was kind of 1926 themed a little bit. So this little booklet has a list with little descriptions of some important sightseeing things that you might want to see when you're visiting Philadelphia for the sesquicentennial. It's called Little Glimpses of Philadelphia, authorized by W. Freeland Kendrick, mayor. And there's just little pictures of things like Independence Hall and Christ Church and, of course, the Liberty Bell. And one of the things that I instantly noticed when we were flipping through was an aerial view of the Delaware River showing the Port of Philadelphia. And of course, what's missing from this picture, Matthew? Our bridge. Our Benjamin Franklin Bridge that we can see from our house because it hadn't quite been built in time for this photo. Uh, we'll talk more about that soon. Um, but there's also things like an architectural sketch of the art museum, which was still being built. The art museum being, of course, the famous museum with the steps in the front that Rocky races to the top of and does his stupid Rocky pose. No, it's not <laughs> stupid. It's not stupid. It's really great. Everybody does it. There's a proposed new Pennsylvania Railroad Company station to be erected on the west bank of the Schuylkill. And while it turned out pretty cool, like 30th Street Station is an amazing train station, this mock-up is sort of next level. <laughs> it, it <did. laughs> it's a little less classical. Um, and definitely of the era. And uh, a bit of a shame that they didn't build it quite like that. Yeah. But We'll post some pictures from this little booklet because it's kind of neat. We decided to leave the antique store and move on over across the street to the open house. Historic Stevensville sites are run and maintained by the Kent Island Heritage Society, which is a group of residents of the island who are pretty well organized and invested in uh, spreading the story of the history of their island. On these open house historic Saturdays, docents, volunteer docents from the society, staff all of the historic buildings in costume and provide live guided tours. Yeah, as we were walking up to the old Stevensville post office, a woman was chatting with one of the other docents across the street, saw us approaching, 
and very excitedly crossed the street and got into position and welcomed us into uh, the post office. Uh, she was in costume, and they actually have it set up. They have an old letterbox there, and she reaches in and says, oh, I've, I have a letter for you. <laughs> It was so cute. It was really adorable. She was really passionate. I loved it. Uh, so the historic post office on Kent Island was built in 1877. And a bunch of the stuff that was in there was pretty original. So it was kind of cute to go in and see the sort of historic fittings and the shape of it. It was really tiny. And, yeah, yeah, some of the stuff had actually been sold and then found again and brought back in. They did a good job with the space. And then across the street from the post office was the Stevensville Bank that another volunteer docent lady ushered us into and gave us a little tour of the bank, including the vault. They have the original vault with one of those big metal doors that she brought <laughs> us into. And it was about at this point that our defenses started getting worn down and before long we were trading history with her. In other words, she was telling us about the history of the bank and at some point we just started telling her about the history of the bog house. Behind the bank we saw an old train station. It's no longer in use. There was the train station uh, and a caboose actually, more importantly. Behind the train station, what do we see? There's an old outhouse. There's a privy. A, <laughs> <laughs> technically no privy. Yeah, it was, a, it was a fake, like it didn't have a privy underneath it, but it was a bug house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was it a two-seater even? Um, uh, I think there was just one seat. We'll, I was the one who sat in this. So. We'll, we'll share photos. We've already shared them on our Instagram before, but uh, we'll, we'll re-up in case you need a refresher on what the inside of an old bog house looks like. Yeah, so we beeline for that, and we're taking all these photos in the toilet like a couple of freaking dorks. And uh, <laughs> then we see coming out of the caboose area a man in a full-on like 19th century train conductor, not conductor, like a... What engineer, right? Is that engineer? An engineer outfit. So anyway, Mr. Engineer with his uh, amazing facial hair. Yes, he had like 19th century whiskers. <sighs> they were real. It wasn't a costume. He wears <laughs> 19th century whiskers like every day. He came out and he introduces himself as Jack Broderick, president of the Kent Island Heritage Society. No wonder he has 19th century whiskers. Yeah, he was in it. He, uh, <laughs> he was very happy to tell us all about what was going on here in terms of how the town organizes this every month and went into great detail about not only the caboose that we are in, but just sort of the history behind this outhouse, which had been moved from its original location. And when he, we told him about our privy digging adventures, he knew what that meant. He actually mentioned for us to go to, there was another site further off. It was a couple miles off, but still on the island. I think it was like a farm with maybe an old country store that was still preserved. But um, at this point, we were both like, we have to get the fuck off this island because we're supposed to be here on a vacation. And vacation. We're, we're Time already off. just telling everyone we meet the story of the goddamn podcast again. They're like, maybe we can just head into Annapolis and relax and enjoy ourselves and just eat food and look at a city without actually talking about a building. You think that's possible? Can yeah, we do that? So Is that we, a possibility? <laughs> we, uh, we got in the car and we uh, crossed the Bay Bridge, which is a big fucking deal in uh, the Chesapeake Bay area. The Chesapeake Bay Bridge. Not to be confused with the 
Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, which is a whole other thing. But this bridge is kind of a big deal because it changed the face of the shore across Maryland because you used to have to take ferries across the Chesapeake Bay and they made this big honking bridge and everybody told us about it. It was a bridge. It was just a bridge. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we like bridges, but we live next to a really fucking iconic bridge. So I don't know. (laughs) So we get into Annapolis and we realize pretty quickly that this is also a fairly historic city. There are a bunch of colonial-era houses, which they've marked with color-coded badges to tell you which century they were built in. And there's some museums and there's sort of old-timey sites that you can see. We're trying to keep it casual, (laughs) but we do end up going to, like, the older part of the city and getting some coffee and then hitting, like, the main street, which is called Main Street. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? Well, because, I don't know, in Australia, we don't really, I don't think that you have Main Street in town. Like, that's like a very American thing to me, for small towns to have a street that's actually called Main Street. So, Annapolis has a Main Street. Annapolis has a Main Street. And one of the nice things about Annapolis being this older city is, like many other older cities, it's very walkable. Um, which is why we got around the way that we did. Again, the intention wasn't to go into this history deep dive. It just happened to be that this stuff was here and around and it was cool to see. Right. So Main Street in Annapolis leads from the State House because Annapolis is the capital of Maryland, much like Pennsylvania and New York and a bunch of other states. And in fact, the whole country of Australia, the capital is not the biggest city. It's like some smaller out-of-the-way city. Right. Then Main Street goes down to Annapolis Harbor, which is near the Navy base that we couldn't go to because it's a Navy base. Uh, But there were sure a lot of Navy people working around in Navy uniforms, which (laughs) kind of freaked me out. (laughs) How do they keep their uniforms so white? How do they do that? Uh, OxyClean, I'm guessing. No, but like, don't they eat? I'm just really, I couldn't even wear white on our wedding day because I know when I wear white. I stopped wearing white for the most part a long time ago, mostly because of food stains. Yeah, I mean, all (laughs) I have to do is like... sorting laundry is so much easier when you don't have whites. If I touch my face and then touch my clothing, I'll leave like a freaking makeup or oil stain on a white item of clothing like i used to eat a lot of italian food and mm. tomato sauce loves my white shirts yeah no i just i am in awe of naval personnel (laughs) in white dress uniforms i just don't understand anyway while we're wandering around of course melissa's mind is always going and (laughs) (laughs) i think this maybe got kick-started because of what we were looking at earlier but she turns to me and says didn't benjamin mifflin come through here Okay, we have some audio from shortly after I realized this. We're here in Annapolis, and we were just strolling around doing nothing when we remembered that Benjamin Mifflin, who owned our building, he bought the building from the Pens and owned it from 1740 through to 1760, when he sold it to Abraham Carpenter, who actually built the building. So he owned the plot of land. Yes. And Benjamin Mifflin, of course, wrote a journal 
the Journal of Benjamin Mifflin, the record of a tour from Philadelphia to Delaware and Maryland, July 26 to August 14, 1762. And we remembered that he had stopped in Annapolis. So we looked it up, and not only did he stop in Annapolis, but he stopped on fucking Kent Island where we're staying, which we went to stay at and do nothing. <laughs> we're really bad at vacation. And now we're going to work. To be fair, it sounds like Benjamin Mifflin doesn't take relaxing trips or vacations either. Cause <laughs> no, when we read through this journal, he was doing this as a business trip. He was trying to figure out what to do next. Yeah. He had actually just sold this property. And he was visiting some relatives, but the entire way down, he's like making business notes about every place that he went to. And also just giving his opinion on towns, I think for business reasons, but it just comes across now in the 21st century as Benjamin Mifflin being a big old complainer oh, about everything. such a crank. <laughs> <laughs> so... This is August 2nd, 1762, after staying at the White Horse Tavern. Viewed Bladen's Folly, as the inhabitants call it, the ruins of a spacious building began by Governor Bladen, but carried out no further than the brickwork and joists two stories high, but, if finished, would have been a beautiful edifice. It stands on a pretty high hill on the northeast corner of the town and commands a good prospect of the town and adjacent country and a fine southeast prospect of the Severn. And there's a little footnote in the journal which says that Bladen's Folly was the name of a building projected by Governor Thomas Bladen as a palatial residence for the governors of Maryland. It was situated centrally on a plot of four acres, conveyed in 1744 to Governor Bladen by Stephen Bordley. Why do people list these names? I don't know who these people are. <laughs> Erection began under the superintendence of an architect from Scotland named Duff. Of course. Just Duff. Just before the work was on the high road to completion, a controversy between Bladen and the legislature stopped all work and the building remained so until 1784, when by an act of legislature, the property was given to St. John's College, where it is now known as McDowell Hall. So, of course, we reading this were like, oh my God, can we just go up there and look at this house that Benjamin Mifflin looked at during that 80-year period when it wasn't finished? And sure enough, you can go to St. John's College and find this building, which... Describe what this building looks like. Well, it's a tall red brick building. It's actually about, I guess I'd say three and a half stories tall. Yeah, so clearly they got over the two stories where they <laughs> where they stopped work on it, <laughs> yeah. like this abandoned project. I mean, it makes sense that this would have been a governor's mansion in the original plans. It, it very much looks like that. And it's sort of a Georgian federal style. There are columns out front... And it's got a couple of plaques on it, one indicating that the National Historic District, I guess for historic Annapolis, marks this site as being historic. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that was dumb. <laughs> There's also a large plaque that was added to the front of the building, I'm guessing in 1946. It's not a guess, it says on the plaque. <laughs> <laughs> um, Keep them guessing, Matt. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, on this plaque, it says 1696 to 1946, 
This tablet was fixed on McDowell Hall in 1946 to commemorate the 250th anniversary of the founding of the King William School. To this hall in 1785, the second year of the foundation of St. John's College came the students and masters of the school with their books and made one with the new college. Oh my. Mm. That sounds sexy. This will remind men that all <laughs> uh, walls of learning are one hall. Uh-huh. Okay. Anyway, so we find this building. I think we made a really... We made a comment as we were walking up to the building about how, I wonder if we never finish the theatre, if it will be known as Dunphy's Folly one day. <laughs> yeah. <it's, laughs> you know, what What a shame that that's what this guy is known for. I know. <laughs> it's like back in the olden days, this building that was just left unfinished Man, for years. I feel you, Governor Bladen. I mean, you're probably a terrible person, but I understand how projects can get out of hand. <laughs> The nice thing is, because it's a building on the campus, the doors were unlocked. That's right, and we could go right in. And it seems like the first floor now is a big open recital or lecture hall. Wasn't there a piano in there? There actually was. As soon as we walked in the door, we were actually on the stage side of things. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, it became a a stage! (laughs) Just like we're fucking building! This is amazing! So, Bladen's Folly, which is now, what was it, McDowell Hall? McDowell Hall. Is now... A performance space. So everybody go to Annapolis and see something at McDowell Hall, the site where Benjamin Mifflin once stood and went, what a pile of shit. (laughs) 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 Some of his other observations about Annapolis from the site of this building were that the streets are not paved, the houses are generally old, (laughs) ill-built... There are but two new ones, as I could see now building, and but very little trade stirring. So Benjamin Mifflin was basically like, I looked out on the town from this vantage point, and Annapolis is a shithole. (laughs) He was not very nice. Um, For all that he says about these buildings being like old and ill-built, they did a surprising good job of keeping so much of this. I think one of the things that stood out to me when looking at the buildings in Annapolis, we talked about how Philadelphia was built as this grid of brick buildings to prevent fire. There were so many more timber buildings. That's true. Well, one of the other buildings that uh, Benjamin Mifflin mentions, which we were able to visit while we were in Annapolis, was Jonas Green's printing house. What did he write about Jonas Green? This is, uh, again, from that journal that he kept. Went with Jonas Green to view his printing office, which is all below capacious, airy, and convenient. Uh, So he liked this one. Yeah, it seems like he likes a house if it's owned by a rich guy that has a lot of money to build a nice fucking house. I don't know. Flattery gets you everything, I guess. Uh, Took a walk in his garden, where, among other things, observed a tree, which he calls the cattlepecked tree. I'll have to look that up. Um, Planted about 10 years ago and is now about 9 inches thick and about 25 feet high. The leaves are large as the water beech and grows in a regular beautiful order, much like the English elm. So he likes trees. Again, in his journal, in this published journal, there is a footnote. Jonas Green, 1712 to 1767, was a native of New England, descended from Samuel Green, the printer of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hmm, more about that next week. And a son of Timothy Green, printer of New London, Connecticut. He came to Annapolis in 1738, right after he married Anne Catherine Hoof. 
a native of Holland, Mrs. Green, comma, an aggressive woman, comma, <laughs> I like you, Mrs. Green, continued the printing business after her husband's death and it was carried on by his descendants till 1839. The place visited by Mifflin was a low-lying house on Charles Street and is still standing the oldest dwelling in Annapolis. Hmm. It was used by Green as a residence and a printery and has been occupied right down to the present century, this being the 20th century, by his descendants. This little footnote was written in 1922, but surely, sure enough... We look in the visitor's guide that has a list of all the historic houses in Annapolis, and Jonas Green's house is right there. So, we get in the car. Yeah, we gotta go. We go to Jonas Green's house. It's got a red plaque on it, which means it's Georgian, and it says the Jonas Green house. The 1718 Stoddart survey map indicates William Bladen as the first recorded owner of Lot 42. Charles Carroll purchased the property in 1725 and may have been responsible for the construction of the original sidewall double parlor plan when he and several other members of the General Assembly brought Jonas Green and his wife, Anne Catherine, to the colony in 1738. Green was designated the printer of the province in 1740, revived the Maryland Gazette in 1745, served as postmaster, job printer, city councilman, mason, and vestryman at St. Anne's Parish. Following his death in 1767, Anne Catherine continued to publish the Maryland Gazette, the first woman in the colonies to do so. I assume they mean publish a paper, not publish the Maryland Gazette. <laughs> the foundations of Jonas's and Anne's print shop lie buried behind the house today. The dwelling has been consistently occupied by direct descendants of Jonas Green wow. yeah, since his wife's death in 1775. That's crazy. So wait, the foundations only are behind the house? You think it's like that? Under that? Yeah. Oh, it's a separate building, I see. Well, oh. But obviously it was built as a separate building. Do you see at the bottom of the building there's like field stones? Oh, yeah. I bet that's part of it. Maybe bet is too strong a word. So Benjamin Mifflin came here. This is a pretty long way from Philadelphia. Yeah. Did he go by horseback or horse and carriage? Did he just ride his horse? That's... He just had one horse. Mm-hmm. Oh, what's that? The sign of the Bible. Hmm. What's that plaque? I want to read that. The sign of the Bible, built about 1680, the dwelling house of Mr. Jonas Green, printer to this province, 1738 to 1767, printer and publisher of the Maryland Gazette, 1745 to 1767, erected by the Peggy Stewart Tea Party chapter, Daughters of the American Revolution, Flag Day, June 14th, 1932. DAR. I can't actually think of the DAR without thinking of... The glass menagerie. I can kind of see in the window, but I really don't want a sticky beak. But they've got like old furniture in there, Matthew. Look, you can see the front room. Oh, I feel like such an asshole yeah. right now. I bet they do open houses periodically. Yeah. I mean, maybe. Do you think they still live here? <laughs> it says they do, but do they? Oh, well, there is a car on the driveway. Oh. Oh, you're right. It's a BMW. <laughs> this area has really gentrified a lot, obviously. 
So I managed to pull Melissa away from the windows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I was being kind of a peeping Tom. You were really excited. I mean, uh, yes. It was pretty exciting because we've gotten into this whole thing where we're seeing and touching bits of history related to things we've pulled out of the ground. And now we're accidentally at houses that people stayed at related to where we live. Right. It's so cool and unusual that we have the journals of two of the people associated with that building in the 1700s. Like, that doesn't happen most of the time. No. So, and also cool that you can follow the journeys in the journals because that's what a journal is. It's a it's description a of a journey. <laughs> <laughs> You can follow the journeys and, you know, take a look at the same places that those people went. Like, that's awesome. So, yeah, I was excited. This was not a public house. Yeah. Uh, so we changed tack again and went back downtown. It was evident from Melissa's behavior that she needed food. Um, <laughs> one of the things that's funny about Mel is when she gets hungry, she just starts acting funny. <laughs> So, do I? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> well, you forget to eat. You get so wrapped up in things. That's true. Anyway, <laughs> decided now is the time to go get some food. And we're in Maryland, which means crab cakes. It's like mandatory to eat crab cakes in Maryland. I uh, specifically wanted to go visit this place that I'd been to oh, decades ago. Mm -hmm. I'm that old that I could say it was probably multiple decades ago say the name because i always get it wrong it's chick and ruth's deli and so, it's deli spelled like belly but with a d yeah we ate delicious delicious crab cakes yes and then we're walking kind of back toward the car i guess mm -hmm. and i spot this little secondhand bookstore and i don't know what it was about it you know there was some kind of interesting looking <laughs> books in the window so i'm staring at these glass fronts looking at these books and thinking I don't need any more books I have a lot of books literally I have a stack of like a foot tall stack of books next to my bed that I haven't read yet that I've bought intending to read I really shouldn't go in the bookstore but I wanted to go in the bookstore <laughs> And, I mean, since we're married, you have to obey me. Oh, that's right. That's right. Love, honor, and obey. Yeah. I took that vow out. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> we go in the bookstore. And sure enough, it's like a really cool little bookstore. What was it called? I think it was called Back Creek Books. Back Creek Books. I always want to say Back Street Books, but Back Creek. Back Creek. Okay. One of the first things I noticed was like a theater poster, like a little theater flyer mm -hmm. from the 1800s advertising a performance by Edwin Booth, who was the brother of John Wilkes Booth who was a great actor, but after his brother assassinated Lincoln, his career kind of tanked. <laughs> so, sort of tragic, actually. Like, you can't control your family, right? Yeah. Uh, so That was just one of many things that were hanging up, framed on the wall. Yeah, and you could buy all of them. All of them, yeah. Going through this place, it was like going through a museum, but a museum where you could purchase things. Yeah, and for, like, actually kind of reasonable prices. Like... Not that we're going to spend, you know, $300 on a theater poster, but, like, that's not terrible no. for something like that. You should check out Back Creek Books whenever you go to this... Uh, Annapolis. Whenever you go to this Annapolis. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and see it for yourself. Because they have a website. For all I know. 
Google Back Creek Books Annapolis. They actually sell some of their cool artifacts, historical documents on yeah. their website. Anyway, so we're go- we're in this bookstore and Matt's looking at something else and I see a stack of large format books sort mm-hmm. of underneath a shelf. So I start sort of pulling them out and seeing what we have in there. And I just remember I hit this one dark green book. It is large format. So it's landscape format and it's 24 inches, so two feet wide and one foot high. And uh, it's dark green on the cover with gold writing. And I just saw it and instantly knew, uh uh-oh, Matt, Matt, (laughs) hey, Matt, Matt, hey, Matt. Yeah, I had to pull myself away from all the shipbuilding books because I was looking up the West Shipyard. (laughs) Annapolis, big Navy culture, big ship culture. And I look over and Melissa's holding this long book that's called The Delaware River Bridge connecting philadelphia pa and camden nj pro tip nobody actually calls it new jersey nj but <laughs> people do abbreviate pennsylvania as pa uh the inside says the bridge over the delaware river connecting philadelphia pennsylvania and camden new jersey final report of the board of engineers to the delaware river bridge joint commission of the states of pennsylvania and new jersey if you haven't guessed the Delaware River Bridge has since been renamed and is now called the Benjamin Franklin Bridge. This is the bridge that, as we fall asleep, we look out the window and see it lit up as it crosses the Delaware. I call it my bridge because I think of it as being in my neighborhood and it's named after famous omnisexual Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> you know, a point about the bridge names in philadelphia we've got walt whitman betsy ross and ben franklin Mm -hmm. walt whitman virulent racist but also gay man Mm -hmm. betsy ross woman like that's a pretty good spread of bridge names in terms of like people that are being memorialized in philadelphia through infrastructure we should really have a bridge named after a black person because our city is 40 percent african-american yeah that's a very good point you bring up I know something that stood out to me recently. It was only in the last couple of years that we had our first public statue at City Hall, I believe it is, of an African-American figure. Oh, right. Octavius Cato. Yeah. Who was a civil rights activist and a prominent African-American leader. And I believe he was tragically killed in a fight on the first day that African-American men could vote in Philadelphia like he was had just left the ballot box or something and a fight broke out and it was really tragic and he died quite young as well so it's this tale of of lost potential and um which is really awful so next bridge yeah the Cato bridge (laughs) we should do that (laughs) back to our bridge the Benjamin Franklin bridge and this book that I found in this shop it is a set of engineer reports as I said which goes into extreme detail of how the bridge was made. It was published in 1927, only a year after the bridge opened in 1926. Which I, I think was was launched as part of the celebration of the birth of the country. The sesquicentennial. That's the word I was forgetting to say. Just like, <laughs> just like the little brochure just that like we picked up brochure. at the antique store that morning. I yeah. mean, how is this stuff lining up this way? This is crazy. So the book, what I love about this book is it's full of 
contemporary photographs of the building of the bridge and the opening of the bridge showing a whole bunch of dudes in boater hats. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's so weird to see. And uh, Model T Fords driving over the bridge back then. Well, all of the diagrams for the kind of traffic that would be going over the bridge had these old-timey cars. It was originally going to be designed to have many more trains going over it than uh, eventually happened because... During the course of building the bridge, the rise of the automobile was so prominent that they really expanded the driving part of the bridge. I love the photo. There's an aerial photo with a Zeppelin (laughs) flying over the Delaware River Bridge. You know, just casually, an extra form of transportation that they expected to really expand and take off. (laughs) Like hundreds of pages of just details, drawings, charts... What's really amazing to me about this is seeing how the bridge was constructed and what a feat of engineering it, is, yeah. it was. Like in the 1920s and previous to that, because they had been designing it for decades before construction began. And you don't really think about what it takes to make a bridge like that no. before the use of, you know, super modern technology. It's kind of mind-blowing. So it's like 157 pages, and then at the back there are a bunch of plates which are reproductions of the actual blueprints. Very familiar feeling to us <laughs> because well, they look like the architectural drawings yeah. that we had for our building during our construction process. And we had actually, as part of the decorations that we had done for the Airbnb on our second floor, we had bought a couple of, what turns out, these posters were made using bits and pieces of this particular engineer's report. And for what we paid for those two posters, we paid a little bit... Like, like a about, little more than that, but not much. Well, we paid about double that for this book, which right. has the originals and so much more. Not that... I'm going to be out there building a bridge anytime soon. But, but we could. We could. We could build a bridge using these instructions if we also had, I don't know, a few thousand workers and a whole lot of steel and the ability to refine steel. <laughs> you know, just a few small things. I understand how the bridge works. It also makes me feel better about our project. Yeah. <laughs> You know what? Like, you know, our, the scale of what we're doing, not that impressive in the grand scheme Dude, of things. Dude, men in newsboy hats and suspenders <laughs> built the Benjamin Franklin Bridge um, nearly 100 years ago. And so our project is like small beans. Who cares? It should be easy. Speaking of which, like, we definitely need to get our theater finished by 2026. Oh, yeah. Because that'll be the sesquibicentennial... Is that what you call 250 years? The Yeah. The sesquibicentennial. I'm just making that term up now. Semi-sesquicentennial. <laughs> Whatever the fuck it is. It'll have been 250 <laughs> years. 250 years since 1776 and 100 years, the centennial of my bridge. So big celebrations all around. Let's open the fucking theater by then. Actually, before yes. then would be great. So anyway, we bought this book as an anniversary gift to each other. Yeah, uh, we're, we're still, you know, kind of scrounging for cash, but this was such a cool thing and we both really liked it that it was nice. And she it gave was, us like 20% off. Yeah, it was, it was a good deal. <laughs> she could see we were excited and she did not exploit that, uh, the woman at the counter, and I really appreciated that. <laughs> Definitely check that store out, Back Creek Books. With that... I think we should maybe wrap up our our tale about Annapolis and get back to Kent Island. 
But before we do, one final thought from Benjamin Mifflin, the cranky journal writer. To conclude with Annapolis, he writes, although there are several large buildings with capacious gardens, I did not see one with any degree of elegance or taste. (laughs) (laughs) Shade. So much shade. Such a shit. If you read the whole journal, it's like that. It's like this town and I can get corn here, but otherwise it sucks. The people here are ugly. <laughs> anyway, so we go. We went back to Kent Island for the night, but the next morning, before we headed back to Philadelphia, we decided there was one more Benjamin Mifflin-related expedition that we had to go on. Yeah, I mean, Kent Island was nice and all. I'm not sure when we'll get back there. And since Benjamin Mifflin spoke about trying to get between Annapolis and Kent Island... And since there's a pretty prominent historical society and what else is going on here, let's see if we can find out where he came to town. Right, because then after he left Annapolis, the first thing he did was get on a ferry to Kent Island because the Chesapeake Bay Bridge did not exist yet. There was actually one false start that he made early in the morning because the wind was blowing so hard when he took off from Annapolis that it was um, ferry was being blown off course. So he tried again in the afternoon and I'll read this bit of the of the journal first so that you get an idea of what we were looking for. About 3pm set off again with intent to land across the bay at Hutchinson's on Kent Island. But the wind being right down the bay and our boat turning badly to windward was till dusk before we could reach a ferry three miles below, kept by one Captain Thomas Rimmer, an old skipper of mine, where I took up my lodgings. Then it says, this is, (laughs) I don't know why this makes me (laughs) laugh every time. (laughs) He misspells Annapolis. He's his. The sentence is supposed to read, from Annapolis across the bay is computed about 14 miles, but instead of Annapolis, he spells it Ano piles. Ano piles. Oh, we're children. <laughs> Maybe he meant it. He, I mean, probably. He spelled it right earlier. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, from Annapolis across the bay is computed 14 miles four of which is the river to the entrance of the bay. And then he has some details about the price of the ferry, which is 12 and 6, and how often you can catch a ferry from one side to the other. But the important part in that passage is that he meant to go straight across the bay to a ferry port known as Hutchinson's, but he got blown south and had to go to a different ferry port kept by Captain Thomas Rimmer. Right. Now, none of these ferries operate today. I don't think any ferry has operated there since the mid-century. Of course, with the building of the bridge, as we talked about in previous episodes, all that kind of seaside stuff just goes away. Bridges killed the ferry star. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we can't find this stuff. And long story short, I think, that first landing that he wanted to make was actually where we slept. Pretty close, we think, uh, like logically. Yeah, the road, I think the road we were on was called like Pier 1 Road or something like that. And 
it just makes sense from the way everything was built around this area that this is probably where that first landing was that he had talked about. It's like directly east of Annapolis. Right. So then logically, if we head about three miles-ish, you know, doing a bit of trigonometry along mm-hmm. the way there, south, we should hit where Thomas Rimmer's ferry might have been. And one of the things you can usually, you know, Obviously, the buildings are probably gone. The ferry doesn't exist anymore. But generally, if you see a small settlement, it probably started because there was a ferry port there. Or if there's some kind of structure like, for instance, a pier. (laughs) A pier or a wharf. And sure enough, we went down there and there was a great big fishing pier. So there is a fishing pier? Yeah, it turns out they actually have a, a marker here with uh, the history of Mattapeak Fishing Pier. Where it says, starting in July 1930, before the bridge was built, ferries carried passengers and vehicles across the Chesapeake Bay. The ferries docked at present-day Mattapeak Fishing Pier. The ferry route from Kent Island to Annapolis was the optimal route to carry the most people shore-to-shore from Maryland's population centers and transportation hubs. The ferries were soon taken over and run by the State Roads Commission, who eventually moved the western terminal to Sandy Point State Park, making the trip even shorter. In 1952, the first Chesapeake Bay Bridge span opened, and the ferries were decommissioned. So we'll walk on the pier a bit. There are lots of people with children and fishing rods here, so you will hear some of that and the water lapping on the side. We spent our last few moments at Kent Island, walking down the pier, walking all the way to the end, walking past the locals that were fishing, and surveying the island behind us. So I would bet that would be where the old ferry connected to. So there's like a jetty and a marina with a tugboat on it. It's where the environmental police hang out. And the, the natural resources police. That's what it is. Yeah, whatever that means. And there's like a break that they've built mm-hmm. so that boats can come in here and escape the waves. And there's blood all over the place. Wow, there's a lot of blood. Oh, good. <laughs> I guess the, sh- the fish are kind of bloody. That's fine. Humans love to kill. Next week on The Bog House, we'll continue our travel log. Yeah, our travel log house. Oh. <laughs> and we're actually going to fast forward a little bit. We're going to follow the travels of one Enyan Williams during the Revolutionary War. Which we spoke about in, oh, I don't know what episode it was, but you can look it up. It's the second <laughs> of our Daniel Williams episodes, War and Enyan. We mentioned that Enyan kept a journal detailing his travels up through New England, uh, following around General George Washington. And it just so happened this past weekend, Melissa had a concert in Boston and Marblehead. Yes, Marblehead, which we talked about in that episode as being a really destitute place during the Revolutionary War. So it was very interesting to go up there now and see how much it has changed. (laughs) But we'll get into that in the next episode. I'm Melissa Dunphy. And I'm Matt Dunphy. And you've been listening to The Bog House. You can find out more about our show at boghouse.thehanna.org. 
The Bog House is recorded at the Hannah Callahill stage in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Thanks to our audio assistant, Kate, and our research assistant, Clarice. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us if you like what you hear.